The Teach Middle East podcast is brought to you by Schoolfinder.ae. Schoolfinder.ae is a comprehensive schools directory serving the United Arab Emirates. Is your school a member? Go to Schoolfinder.ae to find out more. Now, enjoy this episode. This is just such an important question right now. You know, in a really tough market, you've got to make sure that everything is in absolutely perfect order. It's a bit like if you're going to sell your car, for goodness sake, clean it before you try and sell it. A single technical error in a CV could rule you out of the job because a school might legitimately think, if you're going to make a small error in something as important as a CV, what might that look like when you're running classes in a school? What might those mistakes look like on a bigger stage? And if English is not your strong point, for goodness sake, get someone who's really good at English to check it through for you. You really don't want to fail on something where you really don't need to fail at that hurdle. Are you thinking about moving schools or even countries? Do you have questions on whether or not this is the right time to make such a move? Is your CV up to date? And how do you get ready for the interview? We will be discussing this and more on this episode of the Teach Middle East podcast with our special guest, Bill Turner. Bill is a senior associate with the Search Associates, supporting and guiding teachers with their international careers and in finding great positions across the world in the 760 international school that his company represents. He was previously a principal in Qatar and in Dubai. Now let's get into this episode. You are listening to the Teach Middle East podcast, connecting developing and empowering educators. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Teach Middle East podcast. This is Lisa Grace, your host. And today I have the honor of welcoming to our podcast, Bill Turner. Bill is a former school leader and a senior associate with Search Associates. And so he is now in the field of recruitment And so rightly, because we are going to be talking today about recruitment trends in international schools. Hi, Bill. Welcome. Thank you, Lisa. Very nice to see you again. Nice to have you. So with everything that's going on, a lot of teachers are very curious to find out whether this is a good time to be considering a career move, whether they should stick it out at their school or they should move countries, etc., Do you think this is a good time to change schools or even change countries? What are your thoughts on that? Good question. I think that if you are driven to do anything in life, then usually you make it work partly because you just believe in it so strongly that you just make it happen and then you make it work. However, clearly, it is going to be significantly harder right now because of the shrinkage in the overall market and also the changes in the shape inside that market and with the associated difficulties of emigration and immigration. However, there are plenty of schools out there seeking great teachers and prepared to search globally for these teachers. So I think at the end of the day, the answer is it really depends upon you. If you are ready for a tougher search and a tougher process, then you can make it a good time. 
So you do believe it's going to be a little bit tougher than normal, right? Yes, I do. Partly because wherever you go, people like to stick needles in your arms and Q-tips up your nose to make sure that you're allowed to go past the next boundary. But the difficulties of getting inside countries at the moment, I mean, for example, we know a lot of countries are preferring to recruit in-country just to try to shortcut the paperwork process and all these kind of medical challenges that you've got to go through in the quarantines, etc. But it is still possible, yes. So maybe instead of choosing to move countries, if teachers could be looking locally, do you think that's probably where more opportunities would lie? I think you are definitely advantaged if you are in-country at the moment for all those reasons. And um, some schools are overt about that. They will prefer people who are in-country. If you take China as the obvious example, because it's huge, then people who are inside China do tend to be advantaged. But equally, it is the same in countries like the UAE. So when the coronavirus pandemic started, a lot of schools started to slash salaries and, and really look at packages quite closely wanting to see how they can save on costs. How do teachers now go about negotiating good salaries and good terms? Because schools are really trying to tighten their budgets. Yeah, this is a very, very common question, particularly from people who come out of the private sector, outside education, who want to come in and negotiate everything. I mean, the thing is that schools have salary scales and they try to implement them consistently. What they can't have is two teachers sitting in the staff room, chatting with each other with identical qualifications and experience, suddenly realizing that one of them is on a much better package. I mean, you can imagine how divisive that would be. However, it's important for teachers to know that there is wriggle room. And there's wriggle room, for example, in the way that your CV is viewed. For example, your five and a half years of experience might be rounded up to six rather than down to five. Your one year experience of tutoring might be counted as a year of teaching. You might be paid extra. You should be paid extra for having done an MA. And equally, outside the actual money itself, there's also sometimes wriggle room in other areas, like timetables, like which year groups or grades you're going to teach or how many classes in the same grade. Sometimes accommodation. Some schools have smaller accommodation close to the school or bigger accommodation further away. One might suit you better. Children's school fees, or even the right to take a cash equivalent instead of an apartment. Uh, Support for personal development, like taking a further degree. So it's not just about negotiating a salary. There are other areas where there is sometimes wriggle room for a school. I wonder, though, at what stage do teachers discuss salary in in the whole hiring process? Not at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, I think that what a head of school and recruiter most wants is they want to be really persuaded that the teacher loves them, loves that school. They want to know you really want to go to that school. If they get any kind of inkling that you're only going because you like the look of the curtains and the apartments and the opportunities to bring your family over, then you're going to start to be put in that category of a teacher tourist. You've really got to persuade the school that you really want to go there and do a great job for the children in that school, for that school community. And equally, you've got to feel that the school is going to look after you as well. So it's a bit of a mutual love fest. You've got to love them. They've got to love you. Once you reach that point, then start to ask about the kind of package. But you know what? I think a really good school and I think a really sensitive recruiter and interviewer 
will let you off the hook yet they will bring it up and i remember when i used to be interviewing for candidates to come to my schools i would always say to the beginning i'm going to take a little bit of stress out we're not going to talk back out the package but i will bring it up at the end so don't worry about it let's talk about all the other stuff let's see if you like me and i like you and if we both like each other and think we can do a great job then we'll talk about the package so don't worry about it I'm glad because I mean I can speak for myself. I was always sort of when do I talk about money? Cuz money is such a touchy topic and you want to make sure you make the first impression to be a really good impression. Yeah. But at the same time, you do want to make sure you're being remunerated for your experience and the expertise that you bring. So yeah, that that's a really really good response. If, yeah. if the recruiter is on your side, then they should take that sting for you and and bring it up and and sort of be your ally and negotiate with you or on your behalf. So that's brilliant. Yeah. Right. So teachers want to move. They might want to stay in country or they might want to look elsewhere and, and they're ready to do so. How do they put their best foot forward? How do they prepare their CV to secure that really good position? Now, you know, this is just such an important question right now. You know, in a really tough market, you've got to make sure that everything is in absolutely perfect order. It's a bit like if you're going to sell your car, for goodness sake, clean it before you try and sell it. A single technical error in a CV could rule you out of the job because a school might legitimately think, if you're going to make a small error in something as important as a CV, what might that look like when you're running classes in a school? What might those mistakes look like on a bigger stage? And if English is not your strong point, for goodness sake, get someone who's really good at English to check it through for you. And you really don't want to fail on something where you really don't need to fail at that hurdle. And we get asked huge numbers of questions about CVs, but there is no such thing as a perfect CV. CVs can be differentiated for different purposes. However, I think most people would agree that it needs to be quick to read. So don't make it too long. Usually one or two pages is plenty. So use presentational devices like you know, bullet points and bold or color or spacing. Use them smartly to help the reader around the page. And also make sure that everything is relevant. Don't write stuff that every teacher does. I mean, what's the point in saying I attend parents' evenings? I mean, goodness me, so does everybody. Only write stuff down that is essential, like what grades you teach and what year groups and special things, things that make you kind of stand out, big contributions you've made. And you know, another really important thing is I often say to candidates is, are you any good at interviewing? And, you know, inevitably they reply, yeah, I'm pretty good. And I say, well, how do you know? Have you ever asked anybody, am I good at interviewing? Now, it is one role of your school's HR to support your professional journey. And this might include interview advice. So talk to them. I mean, here's a neat idea. Drama teachers are fantastic sources of useful advice about reading and evaluating body language and use of voice. Go and make a friend in the drama department and say, can you just watch the way I respond to interview questions and you know, give me some ideas? And finally, I'd say that it's worthwhile really thinking about the very big question. I mean, in a sense, everybody has a brand. It's what you stand for. It's your philosophy in life, what you believe in. So you need to ask yourself, what do you stand for? What is brand you? Write these ideas down. Write them on post-it notes. It might be three to five really big ideas that capture brand you. 
stick them on the wall behind your laptop before your interview. And in your response, whatever the questions you get, keep your eye on these big points and try to make sure that you communicate these in some way with plenty of good, relevant examples. Because everything you write, you say, or you wear, or you present are read by the recruiter as being part of your brand because they all communicate a message. I love that. What is brand you? You have me thinking, because now I'm going, I'm thinking, what is brand you? What is my brand? I think that's something that every educator should ask themselves. Even if you're not moving, I think it's important that you look at yourself, look at the brand, look at what you're portraying, so that when it is indeed time for you to make that move, you already have that squared and you know exactly what you represent and what your values are. So that's brilliant. A neat idea here, Lisa, is an idea we call car park conversation. Let's imagine I've just interviewed Lisa for a job and I'm walking out to jump into my car in the car park and I meet a friend who says, oh, you just interviewed Lisa. Like, yeah, yeah, I did. And they say, well, what's she like? Like, oh, she's like this. And if you try to imagine the words that come out of my mouth that capture you, what would you like them to be? And that's kind of your brand, isn't it? What would you like someone to say about you when they're chatting about you to a friend in a car park? What are the key points of your brand that you are trying to get across? We call that car park conversations. I like that. I'm wondering what would someone say about me apart from that? She's a bit mad. But um, I think it's worth thinking about seriously. So now we're going into the, you know, the middle of the spring term nearly by the time this is aired. And we're not sure what's the best time to apply. Should we have done the duty before now? or Are we late? Or do we still have a chance at getting a position? Yeah, and it's so scary, isn't it, for poor old international teachers, most of whom have to tell their school they're not going to come back. And they go to this awful period where there's, you know, it's like going to a room, they've closed the door behind them, and there's no other door in the room to go through yet. They have to wait. So it's, it's particularly tough, especially when you've got a spouse and, and children to think about as well. I mean, the fact is, though, that the recruitment season never stops. Now, we know the busiest period tends to be normally kind of between December and March. And so ideally, you'd start your job hunt before that December, March period, or as soon as possible inside it. But this year, in our pandemic period, a lot of people believe that the recruitment year is changing shape, and that they believe there's going to be quite a lot of later activity. I think for two reasons, really. One is that it's possible that areas in the world that teachers believe to be safer and managing better are likely to open up more speedily. And that might happen after, for example, the vaccine starts to have an impact or they just get on top of these things. But equally, the changing contracts, and we know lots of schools that have changed to these contracts where teachers only have to give a couple of months notice. And so they are allowed to signal their desire to change school quite late in the recruitment year. We're talking about April, May. And if that happens, they can legitimately do that. And so suddenly there could be more teachers on the market. And of course, one thing we would say to teachers is, is if you leave a job, you actually create a vacancy at the same time. So there are a lot of people talking about more vacancies appearing later in the year than would be the case in a normal year. But how is that mismatch, though? Because if I have to go and tell my principal somewhere around October time that I intend to come back or I don't intend to come back and I haven't secured a role, or maybe I see a role later in the year and I'm you know, interested in, in taking that opportunity, 
are there any repercussions for me walking in in April and saying, listen, I really don't think I'll be coming back in September. I've seen something that I'm interested in. You know, what repercussions are there? Well, I'm thinking of the schools that are allowing that now. The schools, like some of the schools in the Emirates, for example, that have created these new contracts whereby a teacher is allowed to do that. And so there's no kind of repercussion from the school's point of view. I mean, of course, there's a flip side to this. The, the school could do the same. The school could close the contract late in the school year as well. So it's equally nerve-wracking for both parties. I mean, you, like all things, you can look at this negatively or you can look at it positively. On the one hand, it frees you up to be able to make a late decision. On the other hand, if you're job hunting in May, it's a bit more nerve-wracking at the same time, isn't it? Because, you know, you've got less time to find something. Yeah, that's true. I think it's worth exploring if you're looking for a post and you might think it's late. Well, what Bill is saying is it probably isn't and there are opportunities out there. And when you do secure a new role, how do you prepare for this move? Because it's not as easy as just packing and and, and moving across town as if you were in your home country. Sometimes this involves moving to another continent even. How do you prepare for such a move? Well, I think if you have children, you'll probably spend most of your time thinking about your children. And there's plenty of good advice here, which you really should consult. There's lots of good literature, and it is really important you do consult it, because if your children don't settle, then nor will you. And the settling process for your child, in fact, starts from the moment you tell them about the move. And the same thing applies if you have a non-working spouse. The research suggests that if the non-working spouse doesn't settle, then nor does the teacher. So you've really got to take these things seriously. There's very, very good research and good literature on third culture kids. And I think that's just a compulsory read now uh, in terms of looking after your children. But I think also we're becoming much more alert now to the importance of trying to do your background reading on the area of the world you're going into. Now, we should embrace the fact that when we go to many countries and we find out they do stuff differently to the way they do it at home. But on the one hand, that can be quite fun. And I mean, that's the thing we love about international travel and, and international teaching. But it can be very unsettling as well and can cause a lot of issues. So we would strongly argue, do your background reading. If you're going to a different part of the world, find out how people think and work and behave. Because you can bet your bottom dollar, it's not like people behave in your home country. And you're going to have to get your head around that and enjoy the difference rather than it being a challenge for you. And you will be happier and more successful if you do that background preparation. Now, then there are a few obvious things like getting your domestic affairs in order, the very boring stuff like bank accounts and direct debits, your pensions, and dare I say it, your will. Very hard to think about for somebody in their 20s, but it's a good thing to write a will. And finally, the big thing that people get wrong is they take far too much stuff for them, don't they? People seem to forget that there are actually shops everywhere. You can buy new stuff, you know, and it's great fun buying new stuff in the new country. So chuck a lot of that stuff out of your suitcase and just buy new stuff when you get there. What do you think they should bring? What's the must bring item, you think? I think, again, the research suggests that in the case of children, it's very important they have something that means something to them emotionally, something that connects, something they can take with them. So it's probably for them, it's a reminder of home, a reminder of the grandparents, that kind of thing. But probably it's the same issue for oneself. It's probably value is irrelevant. It's probably things that are emotionally valuable, things that are important to you as a human being. You don't need to worry about technology and things like that or 
uh, stuff you can buy. So it's a memento, something you probably enjoy touching and holding and looking at and the memories it brings to you. So it's, it's probably things of emotional value. Yeah, I think so too. I always bring with me like a piece of artwork or a frame, a photo frame or something that connects me to my family and to yeah. home. I'm not big on having loads of stuff. When I had to pack my home up in London and move here, I vowed I will never, ever accumulate a lot of junk <laughs> ever again. Sometimes it's a rock off a beach walk, isn't it? It's literally a yeah. strange-shaped rock that um, somebody tries to throw away and you throw your hands up on horror. Don't throw away my rock. It's very important yeah. to me. It means a lot. <laughs> my rock, that means a lot. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Any other tips, anything else you want to tell educators about you know, the whole recruitment process and moving schools? Well, I think the final thing that I need to bring up is really important is the whole issue of diversity. We've embraced diversity in our curriculums and our student bodies with great enthusiasm for a long time. But I don't think we can really say the same about our teaching staffs. And you know, is the diversity of the student body, for example, reflected in the teaching body? And maybe it's time to come off the shelf here and say that, you know, Search Associates, who I work with, obviously, we've worked this year with a diversity consultancy, which has encouraged us to start by examining ourselves individually and corporately. And we made the decision that we'd been failing. We'd failed to recognize how we were responsible for not acting as role models for a more diverse industry. And we failed to really understand and respond to the experiences of many of our candidates. So it's a long process, but it starts with oneself. And I think with the president's emphasis on diversity and equity and inclusion, it's a good time for everybody and schools to self-reflect honestly on this subject. Yeah, I think we, we can have you back to talk about diversity in recruitment. It's a massive, massive topic. I think one that is needing a lot of airtime in this region, especially where for a long time, your photo had to be on your CV. And you tend to think that once that is a requirement, there can be no equity. Because if I can then see exactly who I'm recruiting before they even open their mouth, then how do they get a fair shot? So that's definitely something that I'm, I'm really happy to hear that Search Associates has taken this seriously because it is a serious matter. And it's one that I believe we can expand on in a future episode of the Teach Middle East podcast. So thank you, Bill. It's been brilliant. And how can people connect with you? They can do one of two things. They can either go to the Search Associates website and have a good read, and you'll find my face in a very poor photograph there somewhere. Or they could simply email me. Um, it's bturner at searchassociates.com. Even though we are in the business of HR, I always think our primary role is supporting international teachers and supporting international schools. We don't insist that people sign up to work with us on a business basis if they want guidance and support. You know, Alice and my wife and I were both you know, school heads and school principals in the region, and we are extremely happy to be of any kind of value or sort of support and help to anybody who wants to you know, throw questions our way. And we still feel that's the most important thing we do. So anybody is welcome to email bturner at searchassociates.com if they feel that we can say anything that's of any help or value to them. Fantastic. And I will link your contact details in the show notes so that if you want to make contact with Bill or Alison, who is not present on this podcast right now, you can do so by just connecting with the information in the show notes. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. It's been our pleasure. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Bye-bye, Lisa. 
Thank you for listening to the Teach Middle East podcast. Visit our website, teachmiddleeast.com, and follow us on social media. The links are in the show notes.